I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. What happens when play disappears from our cities? In a report for the National Trust, Stephen Moss writes, A potential impact is that children who don't take risks become adults who don't take risks. One response is the playable city movement. It defines a playable city as a city where people, hospitality and openness are key, enabling its residents and visitors to reconfigure and rewrite its services, places and story. It's a movement that started in Bristol and believes that by encouraging public activities that actively bring joy, we can create a happier, more cohesive urban future. Examples thus far in Bristol have included a 300-foot water slide on one of the city's steepest shopping streets, a zombie chase around the city centre and lampposts you can interact with. The idea has since spread around the world to include cities like Tokyo, Seoul, Lagos and Austin. I spoke to Hilary O'Shocknessy, producer for Playable City, who leads on the delivery of Playable City projects based in the watershed in Bristol. I started by asking her, what is a Playable City? Well, for us, a playable city is uh, specifically a sort of a a human-led response to challenges for cities that are using technology um, in a way that uh, connects people to each other. So a playable city kind of came out of a, was a reaction to smart city narratives which have changed a lot over from from when we started but at the time they were very cold and very well technology will solve everything and you're either on board or you're not so get out of the way and we find that that's not really a a great way to uh, understand the world or change anything or move forward and especially because the community we're embedded in sees technology as something that we can really use to bring people together and, and come up with better solutions for how we live, better ways of living together, uh, and that there doesn't have to be a human cost to technological development. We can find a way for it to be sort of organic and fruitful and involve everyone. Um, and so what we do as part of that, we commission lots of work. Um, it started in Bristol, but now we do it internationally. So I'm just back from Tokyo. We're doing a lot of work in Japan at the moment. Um, commissioning artists to uh, come up with projects that sort of set this thinking in motion. So we're trying to involve everyone. So putting projects on the street in front of people that help them to talk about technology and change in cities, but doing it in a really playful, fun way that invites people in rather than uh, asks them to have some previous knowledge or understanding about something that that's not their expertise and therefore intentionally or unintentionally alienates them so we want to invite people in and we find play is a really good way to do that because everyone has this ability to be playful um play is also a way of it doesn't have to be language based it doesn't have to be you can use your body so it's a really it's an invitation for people to have different conversations about technology in cities are there maybe sort of Two or three examples of your favourite Playable Cities projects that you've seen that you could share? So one of our projects that we had recently in Austin, Texas, is an older project called Shadowing. And this is by a a group called Chomko and Rosier. Um, And we commissioned this project in hmm, 20s. I don't remember, actually. So I'll have to look that up. I think it's about four or four years old. But um, so basically what happens with shadowing is we replace the technology in street lamps. 
And so for the person on the street, they're walking on the street and they walk underneath a regular street lamp and it records their shadow and plays it back for them. So as soon as they sort of realize this, they start to go, oh, hang on, I can manipulate this and I can, what is this? And they become curious and they start to move differently. They might invite their friends to look at it. Uh, and they just become very curious about this strange intervention in the street, which is very fleeting. Um, and that's an example of how uh, quite a complex technological project can have a really simple effect, simple impact on the street. Um, and then extended from that, people start to ask, how does it work? Why does it work? Why are we doing this in the city? Uh, why should we do this in cities? Cities go, oh, so people are now excited about lighting in cities. We didn't think they would be. We try to ask them about it and they say, go away. So there's all these extended um, benefits to having something really simple and playful and lovely in the street. And we've toured that a lot around the world and we find it's always the same impact. It's really nice to see uh, people's reactions to it. And it's always for us, it's really important that it's an invitation. It still works as a lamppost. You could still walk through and ignore it if you want. Um, so it's always just nudging. We're nudging people a little bit going, what if, what if things were slightly different? What would happen now in this moment? Uh, have, have a moment to think with us about that. So that's kind of a, a doorway to a different conversation. Is technology always a an, an essential part of a playable city, do you think? I mean, do you also do things that are more kind of analog play interventions? Um, we have and we haven't. Uh, we, we're we very interested in technology's role in the world, uh, in the studio, and it is born of the studio. So we're very interested in where technology is going. Um, and any city development at the moment seems to involve technology, so inevitably we do end up talking about technology. But so, for example, in Tokyo at the moment, we are going very much back to basics and not using any technology right now and really uh, trying to discover how people in Japan, in Tokyo can, uh, how we can nudge, not nudge behavior, that's a very specific term, but how we can invite people to behave differently in public space. And we're doing it in very analog ways with colored tape on the floor and trying to just really understand. Um, so we see the value of both. A lot of our work does involve technology, but we don't. We're not interested in the technology. We're interested in what the technology does. So a lot. Of, so loads of our work, loads of our research, we prototype a lot uh, is without technology because it's the same principle of getting people to to look at things differently or feel like they have a right to look at things differently and say, say that they have an opinion about it. And why does it matter that we create space for play in the lives of our cities? Why, why is it important? We can't be expected to live our lives together without room for everything other than commercial interests. You know, we, we're not robots. We're humans. We're we're, we're not just data points, gathering data and churning it out for some profit. I mean, if we are, what's the point of that, you know? Um, and we need to find better ways to live with each other and find different, you know, even finding solutions to live better as, as data points has to be done with each other. And as our cities develop and we become, we're becoming more separated from one another. And so play is a way of bringing people to just remind each other that we are living in the same world together. We can't escape from each other. There is no 
solution that will allow us to move away from each other as humans. Um, and that that's not what we need, actually. <laughs> and that's not what we, how we function best. Um, and the problem is we people are just making decisions based on finance all the time. Um, and that's having adverse effects on us, our, you know, on our environment. And kids aren't playing on the street. Adults aren't talking to each other. You know, um, I think it's really, it's really important for us to remember our role as humans in the world. Um, so that's that's yeah. I, I I came to Bristol a few months ago to uh, to visit one of the streets that playing out. Uh, oh, doing, right. uh, where yeah. they where they blocked the street, and they mm-hmm. were talking about how Bristol City Council had created uh, like a, a sort of a policy framework, I suppose, or whatever mm-hmm. that that made it really much more straightforward. If you wanted to shut your street, it was a really clear, simple process. It didn't take it didn't take months and months. There was a it was an understood process. I wonder what else, um, what kind of enabling policy infrastructures can help a city to become more playful. If you were if you were the mayor of, of Bristol and you wanted no. to maximise its playfulness, what else you might do? Yeah, I mean, playing out is a really really good example of uh, of 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 an initiative that has sort of started as a was able to be distributable afterwards you know started as a good idea but didn't just stay with that one person they found a model to to share it and I think that's um because we have had incredible success with Bristol City Council with people being really open-minded and a lot of the time the barriers that they face and we face are their own structures so I think certainly giving people more freedom within councils to make these micro decisions to to test things out i mean nobody's saying give us the whole city let's shut down traffic and everything for the for the for a month so we can try something out we're never asking that we're saying give us this road for a day give us this corner for half a day give us this lamppost for six weeks you know i think allowing people to try those smaller uh, tests constantly will allow this environment of experimentation which will have a bigger cumulative effect but it will also you know uh, I think yeah allow people in the council to be more reactive to things you know because a lot of the time they they want to do things too and they can't because it has to be this huge project or nothing so I think uh, maybe a little bit of leeway in smaller things might pay dividends you know and to, and to take that question sort of upper level, there's a question I've asked everybody that I've interviewed during this book, <laughs> okay. which has been, if you had been elected in the last election as the prime minister and you, and, and, <laughs> and, you, and you had run on a platform of make Britain imaginative again. So rather than saying we need, you know, so you recognise that there was, that the imagination isn't as strong as it needs to be at this time. And that rather than creating a national innovation strategy, which most governments do, and which basically is just how do we make business as usual more effective, you felt actually what we need is a national imagination strategy that looked at education and uh, a whole range of different things. If your if your aim was if if you're running on that idea of make Britain imaginative again, what might you do in your first hundred days as uh, Prime Minister Hillary? Ah, <laughs> that question makes me want to run away. Um, it's 
But you know what I did think just as you were saying that there, I was thinking about things like the Olympics. Okay, so we're we're doing some work to build up to the Tokyo twenty twenty Olympics and and when there's big sports events like there's an England match tonight for the World Cup, it's seeing the effect that smaller that, that those big events have on smaller uh, communities, like you, definitely when Wimbledon is on, you see more kids playing tennis on the street, or you see kids playing football, or when the Olympics is on, more sports centres became engaged. And I suppose it's about uh, it's trying to give everyone the confidence to know that they're imaginative or sporty or whatever. Like that, there's no. Yes, there are people who are brilliant at it and they are the leaders and there are people who will always be in the football team, but it's allowing everybody, giving everybody an opportunity to take part in that collective imagineering or whatever that is. In the same way that everybody can go play football doesn't mean you have to be a professional footballer. It's just opening up that opportunity for people to take part at all level, I think, is... Um, because, I mean, as, as well with imagination, we sort of go, oh, artists, and we don't think, well, there's the artists don't have, like... The sort of IP or like sole privilege for imagination. Everyone has it. Every single person, and we need to give people more opportunity to express that and show that. And that doesn't have to be just through arts classes or you know. So I think if I could bring in ways to stir up everyone to feel like their imagination is valid, and they didn't just stop at twelve when they left school. It's okay to be imaginative and it's okay to just go, hey, there's this mad thing I'm thinking about and that's fine. <laughs> you know, um, I think that might be. But I, God, how you do that, I don't know. I don't envy anyone with that, those kind of tasks. <laughs> in terms of sort of, you know, the, when we're in a time of austerity, which feels like it's sort of shut, and you have this, this narrative, there's no money for anything that sort of shuts down so much possibility and creativity how do you how do you sell the idea of playable cities to decision makers and politicians is, is there a narrative around public health around social connection how do you if i if i'm the mayor of a city who hasn't got into this idea before how do you what's in it for me we don't have any specific health data so we don't go into that area but um we do sell social cohesion we do sell connection we do sell visible uh i mean the council like that we for example the british bristol city council like that their efforts to improve the city are visible and we give people an opportunity to talk about the city other than that's broken fix it or they've shut that thing down why you know so that it's it, it allows for these conversations about city change and potential for city change that are less heated because they're sort of abstracted slightly, you know. Um, and we bring different people into the conversation. Like our process is not to, uh, everywhere we go, we sort of try to create a new community, or not create a new community, but bring together people in that city who are already doing those things so that when we leave it's sustainable we're not coming in saying we have the answer and now we're going away with our bag of tools we go in and go we've done this these are the processes we use we believe that you have those things in your city as well of course you do so we're going to stir this up a little and see what happens and now you have the people there who can carry this on when we leave um and so we bring in a big mix and you'd be surprised how 
isolated still. We re- thriving, amazing cities you go to and loads of people, we get them together in a room and they go, oh, well, our business people haven't spoken to artists' communities and they're like three feet away from each other in buildings, but no one's ever invited them to mix and talk and because they think they don't have no value for each other. So I think a lot of what we do is just just bringing those people together and uh, cities see the value of that, I think, for sure. And um, you, you mentioned before about how there's less um, how there's less playing in the streets. You know, when, when when we lose that sort of visible play in a city, what do we lose? I think it's just sort of I don't know what the words are really, but like not signifiers, but just letting people know it's possible. You know, I think we forget that we have to constantly remind ourselves that things are possible, because um, we kind of take it for granted, and then we forget that. It just gets ebbed away. It's sort of like, you know, if you stop swimming today and then you stop swimming and somebody doesn't see you swimming and we don't talk about swimming, and then eventually people aren't like, oh, we should go swimming. You know, it's that sort of, I think it's important to visibly remind people that these things are okay because we're constantly being reminded of everything else. We're constantly being reminded that we should shop and we should exercise and we should eat well and we should, you know, which are some of those things are really good. <laughs> but uh, I think we need to be reminded to, that it's okay to to do these things as well to be humans, you know, um, and then it shouldn't be confined to certain times or places. Mm-hmm.